some very rough stuff in the next few months to get there. Well, there you go. We can hope that it's going to be good. It still might not be that good, uh, but one way or another, we're here. It's 2021, and it's going to be interesting. And James B. Huntington will be here with us for it, letting us know about jobs and the economy. Thank you so much for joining us for WorkShift Live, James. Thank you, Jason and listeners. Have a good night. This is WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, and it's time for, uh, 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 sorry, Let's Talk Vets, which is coming right up. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles, as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. Overnight low down to 25. Tonight, slight chance of some snow, uh, slight more chance of snow in the morning. No prediction on accumulation so far. High of 40 tomorrow. And by the time we get to Friday night, precipitation is likely. Could be snow, could be rain. We might know more when we get there. It's time for Let's Talk Vets. Support comes from Wayne Memorial Hospital, a certified primary stroke center and level four trauma center. Wayne Memorial also opened a cardiac cath lab in 2016 and celebrates its centennial this year. WMH.org. Support for WJFF Radio Catskill comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com, and from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. Welcome once again to Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Our mission is to provide news, entertainment, and information of particular interest to area veterans, active service members, and their families. I'd like to wish everyone a happy, healthy, and blessed New Year. Hopefully this year will be better than the last. In any case, we'll continue to focus on the issues which affect our veterans and active service members. And one of those issues which is always on our minds is veteran suicide. Now, some might say, man, that's a bummer. Why do we have to keep talking about that? Well, it is a bummer, but it seems that uh, there is more talk than action. And raising awareness is something we can do on our program. Our service members and veterans are a precious resource. They entered into the service not knowing what to expect, then some were subjected to unspeakable horror and came home carrying that burden every minute of every day. The easy answer is, yeah, they need help. Give them some medication. Well, they do need help, but they need the right kind of help. And that's not exclusion. It's not labeling. Certainly is not pity. These men and women deserve our undivided attention to help them heal and become whole again. Men like Larry Winters, a Vietnam vet, who, like many of his contemporaries, suffers from PTS. And tonight, 
We continue with part two of a conversation we began with Larry last October. Part one focused on Larry's life through his service in Vietnam and how that experience affected him. Tonight we'll learn how his journey led him to become a licensed mental health counselor and head of veterans treatment at Four Winds Hospital in Westchester County. We'll also learn about his collateral work with Intersections International, which turned out to be the catalyst for a new approach to PTS treatment and reintegration, simply called the Veterans-Civilian Dialogue. VCD acknowledges the fact that veterans returning to civilian society will be in the minority. Veterans in active service military account for about 1% of total U.S. population. In order to successfully reintegrate, civilians and veterans need to understand each other. This mutual understanding is key to dealing with PTS and other issues that veterans must deal with every day. For Larry, however, the most meaningful discovery was that at the root of post-traumatic stress is something called moral injury. Moral injury is sustained when an individual witnesses or takes part in an event which is so antithetical to one's upbringing and teachings that it creates an irreconcilable conflict between their mind and their conscience. Throughout this conversation, I have chosen some of Larry's poetry to enhance the point. You may find some of this disturbing, but it is honest, and it is certainly part of the broader conversation, which is the veteran-civilian dialogue. Now, here is part two of our conversation with my friend, Larry Winters. Well, welcome back again, Larry, to Let's Talk Vets. Uh, when last we spoke, you took us on a journey through your years in high school, your young years, and your service with the U.S. Marine Corps in Vietnam, and the psychological injuries you sustained as a result. Tonight we'll pick up kind of where we left off. How are you? I'm, I'm good, Doug, and I'm glad to be back with you. I, I enjoyed our last interview. It uh, brought up a lot of feelings and emotions, and I, I was happy to return to some of that stuff, which I've been avoiding. Well, I enjoyed uh, doing it as well. We're going to kind of concentrate on your counseling work with veterans, your lessons learned, and some of the stuff that you did with the uh, veteran-civilian dialogue. Very interesting stuff. So the period from 1970 to 1990 saw a lot of changes in your life. I mean, you bought a taxi company, your son was born, you sold real estate, you had a failed marriage, you worked on a lobster boat and as a carpenter in Maine, and then returned to New Paul's to build state-of-the-art energy-efficient homes. And through all this, one thing was always there, and that was the specter of your service in Vietnam. And in... Uh, 1980, you decided to complete your undergraduate studies and earn a degree in counseling. So it's this last course correction I want to ask you. Do you think this was inevitable, given what you had witnessed and experienced in Vietnam and the struggles of your fellow vets? Doug, I think that the course correction was my own compass-setting attempt to find a path that included recompense for what I'd done and participated in in Vietnam. So I think it was more personal 
than it was seeing a, a future at that moment in time anyway. Many Vietnamese died as a result of my direct and indirect physical, emotional support of the war. Somewhere inside me, I knew that I broke silent vows I took in Sunday school and Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts and how I was educated at school. When I had become fully aware in Vietnam that I was a participant in an unjust war, I didn't call it that at the time, but at a soul level, it's how I felt. This is when what I call now moral injury occurred. Right. It's the uh, inability of the conscience and the mind to reconcile what's going on in front of you, I guess. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty succinct way to put it. I would agree with that statement. So fast forward to 1991, and you took a job with Four Winds Hospital in Westchester County as a counselor and a, a group leader. And it was uh, as much for your benefit as it turned out to be for others' benefit, correct? Yeah, I think something important to say about this is so it doesn't sound like I had it all figured out is that none of this was fully in my awareness at the time. But uh, I'd begun to understand this only in later years when I began to reflect on it. And I believe when I realized I was able to help folks that wanted to take their own lives, that's when I started thinking that maybe I can get something back that I had taken from life. So... What was it like to counsel other vets suffering from the same injuries as you? Well, honestly, it wasn't always easy. But what seemed to help is that I knew a language that they did. I understood that listening was more effective than questioning. I was willing to tell my own story. And I was not afraid to speak about death and confront rage that had come up out of the war. I often attempted to get vets to see that their anger came from deep betrayal and abandonment from their families and country. We were able to reframe anger into hurt and ask them and help them express the truth in their communication with the people that they cared for and that cared for them. Well, and that's one of the things that you found uh, very helpful was the ability to express your frustration and your feelings in your writing and to say things out loud that uh, maybe you only thought about before, couldn't bring yourself to say before. Is that correct? Yeah, I think for me and, and some vets that, are, that feel like creativity could be a pathway, they could use artwork um, and any kind of uh, artistic expression or creative expression to communicate those difficult feelings. It often is a very useful tool. And for me, it happened to be writing, writing poetry, which helped me, you know, reclaim a voice that uh, was one I had to manufacture, but it was one that carried some things that I couldn't say in my everyday voice. So do you think you would have been as effective as a counselor had you not experienced what you did 
in Vietnam? Well, I would say my first response is no, because I became familiar with death. And death, in the, if you work in a hospital, a psychiatric hospital, uh, because of something called managed care, and that's the uh, agency that determines whether you're going to have your insurance paid for the hospital or not. Since managed care came in, the criteria for coming to the hospital is pretty much you have to hurt yourself or other people or, uh, in order to be able to be admitted into the hospital. So most of the folks I was dealing with were suicidal. And suicide is pretty close to death. And that issue was something I became quite familiar with during time in Vietnam. I didn't expect to come home. And so I was anticipating not coming home. And so I had some familiarity with the topic of death. And so when I came to the hospital, this was not new to me necessarily. I wasn't unfamiliar with what it was like to be near death. And so uh, I wasn't comfortable with it. I didn't. I didn't have any wisdom about it. But I was knew that I could stand in the arena and be able to try to figure it out with the people that were there with me. We constantly hear the term post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic stress injury used constantly when we're talking about veterans' issues, and people throw those around. They're interchangeable. But the thing about it is, is whatever you call the condition, it's nothing new. It's been called combat disorder, combat fatigue, combat neuroses, uh, complete exhaustion, operational exhaustion, and shell shock. Regardless of what it is called, it's the same thing. And doctors for decades have been trying to understand this condition, its cause, and its treatment. And uh, you had an aha moment when you were on vacation, picked up a book you'd been meaning to read in which the author discussed a term which caught your attention, moral injury slash moral dislocation, I believe you use. And tell us about that condition and, and how that fits into the envelope that we commonly refer to as post-traumatic stress injury or post-traumatic stress disorder. Thank you for asking that question, Doug. There's a name that I found out about that came out of the Civil War that diagnosed uh, PTS, and that was called Soldier's Heart. This name, for me, comes closest to being the most accurate. You know, science has attempted to understand PTS as a diagnosis, thus the D used in PTSD. But um, when this state of being gets shoved into a diagnosis, the soul and the spirit and person in war is diminished. When this uh, repression happens, our highest sense of self no longer is available to guide us, the core of human beings, which has to do with spirit, soul, moral values, all necessary for us to live in harmony with each other. And it is what we need available to us to stop war. My epiphany came about PTSD uh, when I was reading a book on vacation with my wife that was titled Achilles in Vietnam. 
Combat Trauma and the Undoing of Character by Jonathan Shea. And that's where the term moral injury began to become the window for me that I started to look through it, both myself and other veterans. For 18 years, I kneeled by my bed. Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Should I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Went to Sunday school, said the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, followed the golden rule, showed up for Boy Scouts, was told over and over, Thou shall not kill, thou shall not kill. Prayed. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. At eighteen in boot camp, learned how to forget where I came, how to shoot and laugh, how to kill without blame. For eighteen years I'd raise my hand to my heart, and Boy Scouts my three fingers to my brow. With Moses' words still in my head I prayed To God to quiet my fears Then Uncle Sam Sent me to use my skills So I did what he said I shot my gun to kill Then I realized Someone was dead since I've come home from war, I couldn't get the battle out of my head. I'd been half a man if I didn't slay. I'd tried to walk away from death, but found I'm half a man anyway. When I came home, you wouldn't look at me, but pinned hero ribbons on my chest. Now I roam this land a man in a race trying to find my own burying place. Because of war, I'll never kneel again. I'll never go through your church doors. The golden rule is for the fool. I hollered your name, no one came. Thy kingdom has come, my will was done. On earth, there is war, and your heaven is just a game. In 1998, you received your graduate degree as a licensed mental health counselor, and you became head of veterans treatment at Four Winds. And in that capacity, given your recognition of moral injury as a primary component of PTSD, were you able to affect changes in the established regimen for vets? Well, truthfully, only in my own work and teaching. You know, the medical infrastructure and the need, no capacity to embrace reality that we have a spirit or a soul or even more values that affect our psyche. I actually believe most of the healing that takes place in psychotherapy comes out 
therapist listening, hearing, caring, kindness, and support, which are all in the realm of morality. This is not notated, not prescribed, not put into a manual. It happens between two human beings speaking and listening. You know, there are these modalities that every therapist is trained in, but I don't believe that, in my opinion, that those are what really help people. God, rage, morality are topics that traditional psychiatry is unable to embrace. The battlefield is not a virus. It's a monolithic human spiritual catastrophe that medical professionals refuse to label. Yeah, like I said, the, the, I knew the language, so I knew the military language. And I, I and that's not only the language, the body language, it's the it's the history that you you went through at the same time with someone else. So that allows them to pick up uh, that you're you're tuned in where sometimes civilians have no clue as to what they should and shouldn't ask. This is one of the things we did in the DCB, the veteran-civilian dialogue, is we help civilians understand that, uh, you know, that most civilians put veterans in the category of victim, war victims, you know, sort of this Rambo thing where they've been damaged. And uh, as soon as you put the veteran in that category, that veteran becomes less than in their own eyes that they are looked down upon. And in reality, the true reality is, is that there's many civilians uh, who have been damaged as well. I worked in a hospital for 25 years treating people that lived in households that were where wars were going on. You could label their environment war. And there was a great deal of trauma and abuse. So not all civilians are unfamiliar with battlefields. They just happen to be the living rooms, bedrooms, backyards. I killed for you. You killed for me. You may not have asked me to, but I killed for you. I didn't ask you to, but you killed for me. I didn't ask to go to Vietnam. I didn't ask you to go to Vietnam. I didn't support the war. I wasn't sure where or what war was. Still, I killed for you and for me. Still, you killed for me. I killed for you while you paid your taxes. You killed for me when I was 12 years old. You watched me kill on TV while you were eating cheeseburgers. You killed for me while I played make-believe with my friends and dreamed of who I'd someday marry. I killed for you while you were protesting that I was killing for you. You killed for me as I overheard the news of the growing number of lives lost and subconsciously wondered about the ache in my parents' hearts. I killed for you while you avoided the draft, while you ran off to Canada. You killed for me while I rode my bicycle, swam, and went to church without fear. I killed for you as you waited in line at the supermarket, when you were out getting drunk, after you got your first good job after college. Well, you enjoyed free love. I was killing for you. You killed for me 
as I worried about my wrist turning green instead of about the soldier whose name was etched into the band I wore as I cheered for my football team and the man on the moon but not for you you killed for me I have carried pain for you you have carried pain for me guilt for you guilt for me shame for you shame for me for all the killing I did for you for all the killing you did for me when I came home you expected me to heal for you to get on with my life for you to be productive for you to marry you to raise children for you and most of all to forget for you when you came home I didn't notice it's taken me 37 years to realize you were gone I'm deeply sorry for the years of suffering you've endured and I weep knowing the pain in your soldier heart because you killed for me at some point you can help both civilians and veterans understand that there is a lot of turf that is familiar to both of them and the veteran doesn't need to be seen as a victim nor do the people that go through these post-traumatic stress home lives we're all human beings and we all have the ability to be able to navigate these things that's why we show up well it, it strikes me that um what to say or what you can and should say to a veteran so that you avoid making them feel that way, it's its kind of the same issue that you would face with a civilian that had a handicap. People tend to look at them and, and treat them differently. Am I, am I on the right track? Or? Yeah, no, I think, you're on, I think it's a very nice analogy, um, you know, because the handicap will, if you ask if they need help, they're going to feel, you know, they could possibly feel that, the, you know, you see that they need help. So it's the same thing with a veteran. If they show up at a meeting, you know, to talk about something, they're there because they're broken. And uh, any time a veteran gets a diagnosis of PTS, immediately they have a diagnosis. They're sick. They should be taking meds. They should be getting help. They have a problem. And uh, as soon as you have a problem labeled to you, it becomes very difficult to be able to feel like, Whatever is going on inside of you, whoever you really are, has been overlaid with these diagnoses. Well, and it's and that explains also why vets and other people that are that are affected with the same thing for different reasons are reluctant to identify as such or or seek help because it does put a label on them, and in some cases, people are afraid it'll affect their advancement or their career. And indeed, in some cases, I guess it can, right? If you're still in the military, there's only one person you can tell any of these problems to, and that's the, that's the chaplain. The chaplain is sworn not to communicate with anybody about it. But if you tell the therapist, the therapist can't, will use that. That information will be available to others. 
which will determine whether you get promoted, determining where you'll be stationed. It will basically curtail your military career. Well, you're listening to Let's Talk Vets on Radio Catskill, WJFF. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Our guest tonight is Larry Winters, Vietnam vet and mental health professional who has met PTS head-on and developed some very innovative techniques for helping our vets heal. In 2009, you became involved with a, an organization called Intersections International, a gentleman by the name of Scott Thompson, and you guys developed a program titled the Veteran-Civilian Dialogue. When you and I were developing part one of this interview, the one we aired some time ago, uh, we discussed the importance of effective communication with veterans. And over the past couple of years producing this program, Let's Talk Vets, many service providers have stressed that in order to gain trust of a client, it's essential to understand the experience of that particular vet and communicate on that level. But you said, you know, that works two ways because the vets are coming back into a situation where they need to learn to kind of metaphorically speak civilian. Yeah, I completely believe in that. The veteran is surrounded with many more civilians than the civilian is with veterans. There's a small number of people that are veterans now compared to the population and how to return to civilian life and enter civilian life comfortably is essential to be able to move on. So if I'm a vet and um, I happen to end up in one of your groups discussing the veteran-civilian dialogue, how does it work? What's the approach? The approach is to talk about the after effects of war, both for, from the perspective of the civilian and the perspective of the veteran. So you take both of these issues with, with each group and you get them to speak to each other from that perspective. There's no one that's not affected by it. And so when you ask civilians to begin to talk about what it's like for them, what, what, how in their lives has the war affected them, and the people they care for, and how is the war? How have the wars historically affected their families, so their parents and their grandparents? And you begin to hear stories that all the after effects of war are have accumulated in almost every person that's at these events. And so you find territory which is somewhat neutral, but also addresses the after effects of war. The girlfriends, kids, and wives also stand on our front lines, risking their lives. The battles they face we don't see. They're at the dinner tables, in their cars, any place they may be. Their enemy is the one they love, not the one they hate. Seldom do they escape, no matter what the incoming may be. A fist in the face, screaming at the kids spilling his guts all over the place. Bombs get dropped every day. All of this for no pay. They stand alone and wait for him to come home, all the way. Nothing feels more alone than standing next to your man 
and he's still in Afghanistan. Also, when you create smaller groups with, which are safer, you create uh, exercises where can, people can actually talk freely without being interrupted for a certain period of time about a topic that's almost always related to the after effects of war, whether you're a veteran or whether you're simply a, you're a civilian that's had someone else in your family affected by it. You talk about how it's uh, bothered or affected you. And, you know, at some point, we all begin to realize that this isn't a unique circumstance that no one, not everybody can relate to because it's got a lot more doorways in it that are, that are used by both civilians and veterans. How have you lessons learned in your work with intersections changed your approach as a counselor? Well, for me, as a Vietnam veteran, a lot of the work that I was doing during that time had to do with Iraq and uh, Afghani veterans that were returning at the time. So these were younger people. And uh, what I was able to experience was that there was a lot of similarities in both groups, even though their generations were different. And um, I found myself fairly comfortable being able to talk with them and interact with them because of my own experience on the battlefield. It helped me begin to see that some of the dynamics that are going on in these current wars are different than Vietnam. The amount of um, high-tech equipment that is used, such as drones and other equipment, where you're not exactly pointing your gun at somebody, but you are aiming at people with on your screen or uh, at a distance, a great distance, so your life is not exactly in danger. And the fact that these events are just as powerful, because if you see a flash on the screen, uh, that's a human life. And it doesn't go unnoticed by these folks uh, that they have taken a human life, even though it's just a blip on a screen. So I was able to understand that because we've distanced ourselves, we drop the bomb from such an elevation, you don't hear or see the, the, what it does to the people on the ground. It's not, that still lives in your soul and in your psyche. It doesn't go unregistered. That was one of the primary things that I learned, which is what you said earlier. You know, you could go back to any war and you're going to see the similar dynamics. Given what you just said about the uh, drone operators and that type of remote controlled weaponry, what effect do you think that the younger folks having cut their teeth on video games, and now some of these video games are very, very realistic in terms of graphics and and um, the way the things react, do you think that that dumbs down the senses of somebody who then goes into the service and ends up uh, piloting a drone from Omaha to kill people in Afghanistan or Iraq. So when I came off the battlefield, it took a long time for me to slow down enough to realize I came off the battlefield because there were lots of things that got registered on the battlefield that I never paid attention to until I 
went through other life experiences. I was on the run for probably the first 10 years of my life, running away and running towards everything. And so if anybody were watching me, you would think this never affected me much. But as I grew older and I began to slow down and I began to reflect on where, where I'd been and what I did, these experiences began to emerge in my life and in my psyche and in my behavior. And so I think it's the same thing for the drone operator. You know, at first you just see the flash on the screen, but that flash on the screen will be in your memory for a lifetime. And it will be, it'll follow a cycle where it will return regularly. And you know that it's affecting you. Now, I, were, I went to see a man in Alaska. I had a, a student that moved up there. And he became a therapist, and he asked me to come up and teach, mostly Eskimos. They were going into mental health practice, how I worked. And so when I got up there, I met a man, Vietnam vet who was an Eskimo that was living on a remote island with his wife and a few people and was you know, doing the fishing and, and hunting his own food. And I went into his living room and we sat there and we talked about Vietnam for two or three hours. He was stationed on a remote island off the coast of Vietnam. That was simply a, a, a uh, avionics, towers of communication. That's all that was on the island. So he saw no war at all from that island. But he knew that every signal that was going across those towers that he was maintaining we're going to jet fighters, we're going to helicopters, we're going to people that were killing people. And he stood in his living room in tears telling me how he knows that he was involved in taking lives because he maintained the towers off the coast of Vietnam. And uh, I think that that story just really moves me. Uh, it registered at a deep level that he didn't forget any of this. And then if you put food on somebody's tray, you loaded an airplane, you were participating in the major project of taking, that's all war is about, taking life. Who is accountable for the enemy's dead? Is it the man peeling potatoes in the mess hall? Is it the clerk who typed the orders? The recruit climbing the boot camp wall? The airman sweeping the hangar? The general pushing map pins in, back home, the CB nail banger, the drill instructor on the rifle range, the guard that stands alone, the sailor making his bunk, the private on the battlefield picking through the bones, the recruiter at the school, the GI who is out getting drunk, the Humvee mechanic who reaches for a tool, the grunt who pulls the trigger. Who? is accountable for the enemy's dead? Is it the young couple who have paid their taxes, the housewife food shopping, the secretary sending faxes, the college kid who's out bar hopping, Wall Street's white-nosed money takers, the CEOs whose heads rest on pillows of crank, the new car makers, the man at the race who fires a blank, the Congress and Senate whose children hold no rank. You are accountable for the enemy's dead. Don't run away. 
It's taken me a long time to say. Stop holding your head. Take your hands from your ears. You are accountable for every one of the enemy's dead. In your work, you mentioned a term called grand rounds. In working with West Point, what was the nature of that work? What are grand rounds? Grand rounds, at least in the hospital where I work, we had them once a month where a speaker would uh, come before those at the hospital that could come and people outside the hospital that were interested in mental health. And uh, so we would come and listen to a, a seminar about a particular topic. And so I was asked at one point to talk about veterans. And the hospital where I worked at was Four Women's Hospital, which is down in Westchester, not too far from West Point. And so West Point was invited to come. And I was, to my surprise, about 10 or 12 of them came in uniform. And they came to sit through my talk, which was on moral injury and um, what the after effects of war, how they affected me and how I used, how they affected me to do my work as a therapist at that hospital. Now, that's that's interesting because West Point teaches people how to be warriors. So how would they use that knowledge and that training that they got during these programs in training these cadets? Well, I think what that particular group was responsible for was the mental health of the cadets. And so they worked in the hospital and they worked in the other mental health parts of the hospital. So there was, a, there was an awareness that there is an after effect of war on, on veterans. I don't think that they took what I was saying back into the training program yeah, I was going to say that's a little uh, counterproductive if you're teaching people to be warriors and you're going to tell them how screwed up they're going to be when they get back. Well, that's part of the reason that moral injury is not a topic, because there's just no question that, you know, we're not supposed to be killing everybody. And you're certainly not supposed to be killing somebody that isn't really threatening you in some overt way. And so when you have wars that are, that are wrapped up with finances and money and oil and all kinds of other issues, and power grabs from politics, you're going to send people to war, you ought to be pretty sure that it's real and that there's a real threat. And it's, it's not, uh, you know, facilitating someone's pocketbook or helping someone to get elected. know it's hard to figure, but if you can't understand it, just pull the trigger. What would we be without the cannons down beat? Oh, say can you see the enemy looks just like me? Can't you see that without these wars, so many would have to close their stores? Keep the change, stash the cash, cash from 
It's only money, but and don't think that's so funny. It took a lot of young blood buried in the mud to make your wallet fat. So just keep piling up the ammo. Fill the bomb racks. Shooters look down range. Fire when the market drops. Launch an airstrike when the dial slips. Drop that bomb and if Wall Street rocks. I know it's hard to figure, it's hard to figure. But if you can't understand it, just pull the triggers. Well, and it seems like all of these wars have had that element as one of the drivers now you could you could attribute more moral high ground to Pearl Harbor, for example, was a sneak attack. Yeah, or Hitler, you know, basically right. take, taking over part of the good part of the world and killing millions of people. But even within that, uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of World War II veterans who suffer a great deal of PTSD, and part of the problem is is they made all of our returning veterans heroes. And when you're made a hero and you're put on a pedestal, it's not, you don't have a lot of license to talk about how you actually feel and the dreams that you're having and how frightened you were and how, you know, you don't know how to manage what's going on in your life because you just were overwhelmed with trauma. So you, you're compartmentalized. And a lot of these guys, you know, I talked to a woman who for 50 years slept next to her husband and never slept, rolled and tossed and kicked, and he just never had a night's sleep. And she was just going on and on about telling me about this because it all had to do with what happened to him in the war, and he got no help for it. And that was 50 years. A great deal of this stuff that got repressed because we saw these guys as having, you know, done great things, and they did. But they, they were still human beings. Some people have an ability to be able to integrate some of this stuff, and other people are more sensitive and, and have other ways that they experience the world, and they, they don't integrate it so easily. My wife, long after the battle sounds have ricocheted off the homes and run headlong into the desert, exhausting their last vibrations of terror, they can be heard in those whose blood they have entered. In the chambers of the heart, they've been amplified for life, becoming the background of every living action. My husband, the battle sounds are in our home, at our dinner table, in our bed. With my ear to your chest, I hear the concussion in your blood. My wife... The tender words of mother, father, wife, and children have become welcome rhythms of healing, but my war bones will vibrate for life. My husband, I thought the nighttime whispers of our children would feed your trust. But no, our son walks like you, shoulders hunched for attack. 
Our daughter holds your hand when you sleep in the chair. Such courage she has. My wife, there is nothing as loud as a cannonade, or a rifle shot hitting its target, or a rocket's whistling, or the whisper of a dying soldier, or the echo of a wounded child. With a silence at our dinner table back home. My husband, your body screams for God to touch you. Your soul, a great bear, wraps its arms around you, trying to rock you to sleep. My wife, where is he, the one who sings with thunder in the heavens, who fans the wind with his tongue? Who spins the seasons in the sky? My husband, morning comes. All of us are alive. Still with you, in the trench. My husband, when will you listen to us instead of for him? Is that kind of like what first responders have to do to keep from going crazy every time they deal with a horrible situation? Don't they become hardened? And is there such a thing as hardened? Well, I think when you throw morality in there, you know, if you're a first responder, you're not necessarily dealing with morality. I mean, the, the event might be an immoral event uh, if the, the towers blow up and you've got to go help. But you're not responsible for it. When you're a soldier, you see what happens. So you might get traumatized, but you probably were involved in traumatizing others. It becomes more complicated whether you were holding the gun or not holding the gun. So I think the trauma that our, that our healthcare workers today are, are dealing with is just overwhelming emotion that any healthy human being would have. I mean, I said some people can integrate it. But they might integrate it by denying it. They might integrate it by finding some way to pull them through it. It might be their religion or a way to manage it or the, that they have people around them that have helped them or supported them in such a way. But the, it's not... Clear cut for anybody. At one point, uh, you and Scott were invited to the Pentagon, and yeah. uh, that's kind of interesting. What did what did they want from you, and and who did you meet with, and how receptive were they of your ideas? And I mean, one would expect a good idea or a, a, a proven method to migrate into VA treatment. Do you have any indication that any of that was adopted? Well, I, I wish I could answer all those questions the, the way I'd like to, but uh, we were invited twice to the Pentagon, and I think the primary reason that we were invited is because there were organizations all over the United States that were working, trying to work with veterans, because it was fairly clear that the suicide rate was high, and so we went to Georgetown to speak there. And we met a lot of people that were involved in creating programs and evaluating programs that were being created to help veterans. 
And so there was a movement in the country at that point in time to attempt to try to help veterans. We were invited because we were doing something different than most of the other groups, which was we were focused on civilians. We were really trying to create the integration of civilians and veterans together. And they apparently liked the fact that that was what our topic was. So we went there and explained what we did twice. It never manifested into anything other than boosting our egos, which we we enjoyed. We could say that we went to the Pentagon, but it never turned into a program. They never wound up supporting us. So that was was short-lived. You guys were interviewed by the New York Times. What was that all about? Well, it was interesting. I'm just going to tell you the straight-out story. We were right on Fifth Avenue in, you know, in, in New York City, not that far from the New York Times. And so they showed up with a reporter, and I was front of the group. There were probably about 80 people there. We normally started with some kind of music or poetry or something that was uh, set the mood. And so I was reading some poetry that I'd written, and it was all relevant to the veteran-civilian dialogue. And one of their reporters was sitting in seats back and took a photograph of me reading this poem. Later on, when they wrote the article about the veteran-civilian dialogue and what we were doing and why we were doing it and how we were helping people, they put the photograph in the New York Times. And the person that was right in front of the photographer was a veteran who had a bald head. And right on the back of his head was a target on his head. <laughs> it became the picture of the week or something, so they had it in paper more than once. That's how I made it into the New York Times. <laughs> 15 minutes of fame, yep. So look, in uh, 2000, uh, was it 2011, Scott left Intersections, and you brought in a new guy. I brought in a new guy, Dr. Peter Pitzley. He was a dear friend of mine that uh, I'd been working with at the psych hospital for 20-some years. And um, Peter was um, someone that did a similar kind of work to me which was psychodrama, which is what one of the modalities that we used in the hospital. He was not a veteran. He was, was not involved in the war at all. But over the years in our friendship, he became quite familiar with my experience of the war because I shared it with him. And uh, so what we decided to do is to take it to another level, and we developed a training program for people that would run other groups outside the, beyond the intersections group. We wound up writing a book called The Veteran-Civilian Dialogue, a manual, more or less, that could be used by other people, therapists and people working with that. It never really got published. We did it for intersections, and I don't believe that they ever published it. It's sort of the air went out of the balloon around that time. And... Uh, Intersections ended the veteran-civilian dialogue. So we're talking about the work that you, Scott, and Peter and others did. Do you think, by and large, that that has changed 
in general, the way the PTS is treated? I think there were a number of people in prison to take that into their own practices. There were psychiatrists that would show up. There were people all over the place were coming to learn this new idea. So it wasn't created in a necessarily a formal way, but it took place on the periphery and you know, there's a, there was a, a large audience of people that stayed in contact with each other. There still is people that, that I am in touch with that are, are continuing to use some of the techniques and approaches that we developed. So the current average is still, I guess, about 22 veterans a day that take their own lives. And looking at current approaches to veteran suicide, what's working, what's not? Well, I feel like the biggest... Uh, thing that's being missed is uh, moral injury. Most of these folks coming back from war are carrying a great deal of self-loathing and self-hatred for what they've done. If you're killing people and you don't believe that you're doing it for real good moral reasons, you're left with that. There's no... No one is addressing that reality. Suicide is a violent act. Suicide is self-murder. And suicide, in my opinion, most often comes from rage that is unable to be vented at the person or the situation where the rage belongs. And so it turns in on oneself and the rage gets expressed through the act of suicide. Very often you ask a person, well, when you, if you completed the suicide, who did you want to find you? And pretty often the person that they wanted to find them was a person they were enraged with. And for veterans, very often it's the parking lot of the VA or it's some place where they're going to advertise that they this because of some reason that if you're careful, you might be able to figure it out why. And so until we begin to understand that and look at that, both in the civilian world and in the veteran world, uh, and we get give people pathways to express rage appropriately, we're going to probably continue to can create 22 veterans dying every day. So I got to ask you, you're a young guy, what are you going to do now? Well, I have a book that I've been working on for five years. And the title, the working title of the book is Oh, Say Can't You See? The Enemy Looks Just Like Me. And it has to do with basically what I've been talking about, which is the moral rage that um, has been stirred up as a result of unjust wars. This is a novel, and I used, I use what I know. Uh, as a veteran, to create a story where veterans are attempting to figure out how to climb out of this conundrum that's been created by the society we live in. I want to again thank Larry Winters for sharing his very intimate thoughts and feelings with us. My hope is that someone listening will realize they're not alone and there is help and hope. And thank you for joining us on Let's Talk Vets. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future programs. You can email me at vets at wjffradio.org. 
you can leave us a voicemail at 845-431-6500. Until our next formation, I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your service.